לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet in Highland Park, New Jersey, in the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shemet. Joining me is my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky on Shemet. No, Chesed. They keep saying Chesed. You're on Chesed. You, you tell the truth. I'm just nice. Anche Chesed, New York City, and Rabbi Barry Chesler, Anche Solomon Schechter in Long Island. First day of school for Rabbi Barry Chesler. Mazel so tov. far, so good. Shechianu. It is a Shechianu. For hopefully, it is. A normal, My 25th normal year. year. It's a long time. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Let it be a good year, and it should be a, a wonderful year because we have a wonderful Parsha here. This is Parshat Kitetse. This, as we have been saying, is the most mitzvah dense Parsha in the entire Torah. 74, 74 mitzvot in this Parsha. 110 verses, you do the math, okay? It's almost three quarters of the Parsha is is by its mitzvah perverse. Uh, it's, tw- it's, 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 it's quite 12%, perverse. 12% of all the 613 mitzvot show up. Are in this Parsha. It's astonishing. And so it, it's going to lead to some very, very interesting questions because let's just put this in the most general sense. Many of these mitzvot apply. Many of these mitzvot don't apply. Many of the mitzvot are on the books. Many of these mitzvot have, let's just say, somewhat troubling or um, puzzling or challenging circumstances. Let's take some easy ones, for example. I'm going to, uh, here, chapter 22, verse 1. Lo nidachim. Do not see your brother's ox or his sheep wandering about, and look the other way, be not interested. That you, you must certainly return it to your brother. Okay, and then it says, I skipped a couple of verses, thus shall you do with his donkey, with his raiment, Anything that he has lost, beautiful word, which means you can't disregard it, you can't just ignore it, you can't just pretend. And that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Jeremy and I, we, we have a very, very, um, you know, it's already sentimental relationship with this passage because we used to teach this a lot at, at Ramah. We taught... And there are laws relating to we may have spoken about them in, in, in previous, but this is easy. This is an easy one. Jeremy, easy, yes, it, right? It, it, is, it is easy. And at the core of it is, you know, this deep idea pervading Judaism that we are responsible for each other 
that you know there's the uh, the great statement by the 19th century Rabbi Rabbi Yisrael Salanter who said most people care about their 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 uh, their uh, neighbors' souls and their own property, but a truly virtuous person cares about their own souls and their neighbor's property, right? Like you right. you you have to be deeply involved and say, oh my goodness, you know, I am responsible for my neighbor's livelihood for you know, obviously in the ancient world, <coughs> livestock is super important. So their clothing, their livestock, all, all that they that they you are responsible at Lotu Khalihitalem, you can't ignore it. By the way, you know, one of the great maneuvers, one of the great um uh, rabbinic interpretations which opens up a whole another set of interesting ethical questions is ad darosh achicha. You have to hold if the person if the person is lives far away, if the owner of the object lives far away, you're supposed to hold it until they come seeking it ad darosh achicha. But the rabbis have a magnificent little turn in which they sometimes say you have to darosh achicha. Sometimes you have to search out your 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 neighbor because they might be a charlatan, they might be a, a you know a con man. So you have to verify that the person really does own it and is not uh, a con man and so i think that's like also an interesting question of like how is the you you see to it that the truth and the just thing really happens i think it's it's such a it's a wonderful idea i mean obviously we would say it's an ethical idea returning lost objects it it does presuppose a a sense of mutual responsibility that you are building a society in which we are as you said uh, you know, caring for people and and their objects, and understanding that property is an aspect of 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 their lives. Um, and and if the Torah is trying to answer a question of how do you build a society, then uh, this is one of the ways. And of course, uh, as we we've studied many many times, the the Mishnah and the Talmud will go into into great depths in terms of at what point do you give up seeking that person? What is the concept of yeush, that is, I, I've given up. At what point can you, you know, take uh, something, can you find, you know, do you do you possess uh, something that you found? These are the things that someone, if he finds them, uh, they belong, they can, he can be claimed ownership, and what things can be relinquished. Like, we used to do this exercise where if you spill out a bag of chips on the migrash i think i think there's yeush there i think you know you, you'll give it up if someone wants to eat and no doubt the children will actually pick up the potato chips off the ground <laughs> okay uh hey, how about, i got another i got another really Go i got another great mitzvah obvious mitzvah is easy to do admirable in every way at the very end of the parsha uh chapter 25 verse 13 lo ye be Nice. They didn't have standard, you know, uh, uh, weights and measures. Weights and measures. A person should not have two different stones. A let's call it a one point one pound stone when you wanted to to uh, buy something, and a point nine pound stone when you wanted to sell something. Uh, you did not have a, a one point one gallon bag when you wanted to buy something, and a point nine gallon bag when you wanted to sell something. Having honest weights and measures, honest business practices—that's the whole point. The the Mar says in in Tractate Shabbat that when you get up to heaven, they're going to ask you five questions. The first, the question is Nasata v'Natata v'Emuna. Were you honest in business? This Mitzvah says, Jews, be honest in business. Because the temptation of, of, of 
not being honest, right? And and, and uh, you know, seeing I I, I want to you know reflect on on my my late grandfather, Allah Shalom, but he said, look, I have a lot of customers. There are some customers that. I charge them a dollar for an apple. Some get fifty cents for an apple. Right? You know, it's the sense that 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 no, he, he he knew his customers. He knew he knew that that you know there was a market. There was a market for them, and there is a mark. And the mark. <laughs> the point is that that it's all it in business. The market really determines things, but there are objective, you know, elements in the market, and that is weights and measures are are objective. Okay, try one more here. Kitivne Bait Hadash, chapter 22, verse 8. Uh, a person builds a new home, Vasita Maka He has to put a railing on his roof. Uh, I've mentioned this in the past, but but you know, where would you categorize this mitzvah? It's, it's not exactly ethics, or is it ethics? Yeah, is it's it... ethics. It's ethics because it says um, similarly with the with the Hashavaravida, the lost object, you um, you have uh, liability, criminal or civil, it's called civil liability, to ensure that nobody gets hurt in your house. Like you, you build a house, you need to take extra precautions to make sure that it's a safe place for people. They're not going to fall off the roof. They're not going to slip down the stairs. And it should it be the case that somebody slips down the stairs or falls off the roof? You know what? You didn't take the necessary precautions. I consider that an ethical, an ethical. Okay, so, so would you extrapolate from that? We're, we're we're a day after the commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the 1972 uh, massacre uh, of the Olympics in Munich, where Germany finally took responsibility in, in paying a certain set of damages, uh, meaningful damages to the victims, and uh, issuing a, a, a formal apology, because in, in exactly those words, they did not take the proper precautions in securing the Olympic village. Of course, who would have known then, but, but the fact that the the terrorists were able to just climb over the fence and and get into the compound uh, meant that that th- there were inadequate preparations, and then of course you know the debacle of the rescue. But would you? Uh, I mean, is it a stretch to say that that's Maka or or because there's a crime involved there? Yeah, okay, like okay. In, in, intentional bad actors. It's maybe a little different. By the way, I didn't even think about that until recently. I mean, of course, I thought about it, but it just vividly. It was only like 27 years after World War II ended. Like it's on German soil, it's just horrifying. But you know, by the way, I, a couple of weeks ago, I, I had a funeral, and when I went into the cemetery in Queens, right at the entrance of the cemetery is the burial plot of and a memorial to the people killed in the 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Which which cemetery is that? I've been meaning to look for that. Film. Um, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's in Queens. I could I could look it up okay. for you, but. Yeah. Um, but that's closer to this, right? That's like, closer uh, to the, exactly. Yeah. Just explain. Could you explain two seconds? So there, there was a there was a sweatshop where was, they were making sh- uh, shirt waist, and the uh, I don't actually know all the details, but I think it's something like to to make sure that the workers didn't take unauthorized breaks. They really locked them in, literally locked them in the in the factory, and then when the fire broke out, they they couldn't escape. Couldn't escape. They jumped out. Many of them jumped out, and they, many of them couldn't jump out. And and something like a hundred. Over a hundred women, know the number, but, they, but they were largely Large. young Jewish women, immigrants, um, and it was a major element in uh, the history of labor. In the history of labor in the United States, it transformed uh, labor law and also uh, fire precautions. Which 
I guess under under right. the rubric of what kinds of precautionary measures you need to do for to maintain the safety of your environment, your domicile, or your place of work. The so I think yeah, what makes the the Sherway's fire appropriate to discuss in the context of the Maquette is that the law is designed, and a lot of these laws are designed to teach you to to reach out. We have a tendency to close in among ourselves, to concern ourselves only, only with what we wish to be concerned and not to concern ourselves with the welfare of other people. So the owner of the sweatshop was trying to protect his investment, which normally is a good thing, but he didn't take into account that there were lives at stake. Similarly, you build your house and you don't always t want to take into account that someone might be up on the roof, maybe even someone you didn't invite. And they have to be protected, too, because that's your concern. It's not their concern. All right. Let me let me put one more uh, mitzvah that has a, um, a seemingly a, a rational ethical basis, despite the fact that it deals with capital punishment. Lo yum tu avot abanim, not that cap, well. I'm not going to get there. No yum tu avot albanim uvanim lo yum tu al avot ish becheto yumatu. That's chapter 24, verse 16. Parents, fathers, should not be put to death for the sins of their sons. Sons should not be put to death for the sins of their father. Ish becheto yumatu means a person is responsible for their own self. That is to say, in, in, in situations of capital punishment, and, and of course, we set aside the difficulty of adjudicating those kinds of cases, but you cannot be punished for the sin of someone else. And, and the moral basis of a commandment like that would be to say every single person has their own responsibility, and you can't ransom your own personal responsibility to someone else. Isn't this interesting, by the way, um... That, that there are multiple dynamics at work here and they're not exactly all the same because what's what's moving about what the mitzvah that you just read and and what's ethically compelling about it is exactly as you said there's individual responsibility and not corporate responsibility um, and you know period new paragraph and we also, in Judaism, have a strong sense of collective responsibility. Um, you know, we it, it's the, this partial will include saying, okay, this is this is on the on the good side of the uh, on the good side of the thing. Um, uh, do not abhor an edomite. Edomite domi ki achichahu. Don't don't abhor edomites because they are your kinspeople. Don't abhor Egyptians for you were you were a stranger in their land. Um, meaning that you should treat the Egyptians and the Edomites as members of a great big group. You don't go through each one and say, well, you know, was was that a good Nazi back in 1945 or was it a bad Nazi in 45? We treat them like a group. So some ways we treat people as, as you know, individuals and they should alone be seen as individuals, but that's, that's not the whole of human history. We are actually also members of groups and we share pasts and we share futures and, and that, can, that brings responsibility you, you know you might ask yourselves about responsibility in america today for you know the the evils of slavery and racism in the past as germans for generations have continued to pay reparations for the evils of the shoah like so it's 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 both this, this is a both and kind of situation 
Let, let's go to some of the more complicated ones or challenging ones. And and you quoted the Ammonite and Moabite, uh, or the, the Egyptian, right? Just before that, 23, verse 3, chapter 23, verse 3, Lo yavo mamzer adonai. And so I'm, I'm saying as a, here's a commandment that, that, that is explain in English? discussed, which is a, the, the illegitimate child, the child of a little illegitimate union, that is to say, between, you know, uh, an, an incestuous adulterous. or an adulterous union, uh, that child cannot enter into the congregation of God, Gamdor Asiri, even to the 10th generation. And so uh, this is slightly problematic because the, the child obviously was not involved in, uh, in the child. Right. This seems to be the classic case of designing a punishment to prevent people from committing a sin or a crime and not recognizing that once the crime has been committed, the punishment is entirely inappropriate. Right? We all know this from raising children sometimes. In a school it happens as well, where the whole purpose of the serious punishment is to prevent most people from committing the crime, but it's not an appropriate punishment for that crime. And, and so this seems way over the top. Where so you're saying that you're saying that you're saying that the severity of this is to say to how the, bad adultery is. Yeah, how bad adultery, adultery is. is bad, so bad that no one should be able to redeem it for ten generations. Right, but the punishment alights not. It could alight on the uh, the 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 two adults who are involved in the thing because adultery is a capital crime, but. It'll also alight upon their poor offspring, right? And and so the stigma will be on this child forever. And, and so, so this is a, this is actually a case of not capital punishment, but this is lo uh, to banim alavot. Well, actually, this is exactly what it is. Exactly. Here, it, it is that the children are in fact punished alavot. You know, for the for the deeds of their for the deeds of their parents. Right. So, how do we reconcile this, and and do we reconcile this, or do I mean, we among, first of all, just as a, as a practical matter, in not only conservative Judaism that that we represent, but classical Judaism, it was seen to be kevan um, Once this says in the Talmud, once once they have been mixed in, you are forbidden. Once they have been mixed in, they're mixed in, and. One, if you have evidence of mamze root, you are in fact not supposed to bring it to a court. In conservative Judaism, uh, in the CJLS, at a certain point, uh, Ellie Spitz wrote a paper, Danny Nevins wrote a paper, uh, rendering these things sort of inoperative on moral grounds. Uh, but that doesn't—that's a—that's a how you deal practically with how you've inherited what what can be seen to be an unethical law. It doesn't. Give you, it doesn't really say though. What do we do about the fact that the Torah says something that seems so so cruel? So this this is our our question, and and so using that as an example, we're saying basically that the Torah and the system, the Torah system, which becomes the halachic system, has within it corrective measures or measures to correct itself. That is to say, look, we have this commandment on the books. We don't we don't adjudicate this commandment according to this way, and we may we may deploy. Uh, some various techniques for this commandment, uh, namely in this one, we could say, well, that was then, this is now, or we could say, look, we, you know, we, we, can, we can use um, another mechanism to argue this away, basically. 
because the 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 Torah represents something in its time, uh, but it also recognizes and puts within it the 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 framework of a system that will evolve. Is 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 that a fair assessment of this, or or, or how would you? The basic question be, being, what do you do with difficult things in the Torah? Look, that the parsha opens with a difficult set of situations. Uh, the the captive woman, the captive woman. You know, you're at war. You see this woman. You lust after her, and you take her as captive, and you want her as your wife. Uh, you are to shave her head. You are to grow out her nails. You are to remove her captive garments from her. She's supposed to dwell in your house and, and lament her father and her mother for a month. And then you can marry her. Okay, And then it goes on and tells us if we, we have a situation of a man and two women, one who is beloved and one who is not, and what happens in those situations. And then finally, the situation of the rebellious child, the Ben Sorer Umore, and what are you supposed to do with the rebellious child if you have a rebellious child? Ki ish ben which is chapter 21, verse 18. We have a child that doesn't listen to his father or his mother. And they put him aside and they, he doesn't listen to them. They, they, they grab hold of him. And then imagine, they, they take him to court. The parents take the child to court, to the gate where the court is. And they, they declare to the elders of the city, this child, our child, this one, he is rebellious. He doesn't listen to us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then they're supposed to stone him. So we read this and we go like, wait a minute, this is... This is very difficult. This is very challenging to us. Is, are we, can we deploy the same mechanism of saying, well, that was then, this was now? Or can we say, look, using the, the argument that Barry, you just used for the mamzer, for the illegitimate child, maybe this is a punishment that is not uh, enacted because you know, it's just to illustrate the severity of you know, violating the fifth commandment, re- respecting your parents. Or maybe there's something else going on here. Or maybe we ought to deploy a different set of uh, interpretive techniques for this. How would you approach this? How would, or would you say, look, you know, this is the the sensibility of the Torah, and there is a value here. <laughs> so what I would say is that the burden of the Book of Devarim is to create a holy community, the one that can endure long in the land. And a lot of the laws, especially in our Parsha, Kitetse, are designed to that end, such as what we were talking about at the beginning of our show. And I think that for us, we have to remind ourselves that the Torah is holy, even when it has objectionable things in it. And we have to tread carefully. It's not easy to deal with these objectionable passages and no one solution fits all of them i think you know the rabbis of the mission of the talmud kind of legislated this out of existence by uh, a very close reading which created a situation that could not ever exist in real life and also teaches us a way to read legal literature how are we supposed to read the verses 
in order to generate law. So the person does the, the child doesn't listen to his parents, so that must mean that the parents cannot be deaf. And it, the the Mishnah goes and the and the town would go on from there. So those are things that we could do. But I think that sometimes at least we're too often ready to jettison the holiness of the Torah and thinking that um, perhaps we know more than the Torah. And I would caution against that, even as we look for a solution to a very real, a very real problem. As, as Barry said, the, the Talmudic strategy is to, to find reasons why it couldn't happen in real life. The, the, the deafness is an example. The parents take him, aha, both, both have to have working hands. He doesn't listen to our voice. Aha, their voice must sound the same. And it's, it's in a sense, a little bit uh, of, a, of, a, of a, it's it's not a joke, but they're playing. And they arrive at those, this line, drosh bekabel sacha, expound it and you will receive your reward. Meaning that there are interpretive resources that will help you make something seemingly meaningless into something meaningful. And that is what I really want to go with. I, I'm not against that was then, this is now. And, and, I think that is one of the important pieces in the toolkit of a contemporary reader, because it's true, right? These are ancient texts. The, the, the texts of the Torah, you know, are 2,500 to 3,000 years old. They're really, they're really from a very different time and place. And it's just, it's just not serious um, to not understand that, that they do have their own context. And so we can, in fact, learn something. It, uh, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to say, okay, so no probs. Um, back in the day, they killed their children. No. Uh, I think that there are interpretive resources, though, which will help us understand what a text may have meant to its original audience and what it yet might mean to us. So I'll just give you an example of these things. Um, the, the, the battlefield captive, um, the captive woman taken, you know, in at a time in, in the Ukrainian war and in and the wars in the former Yugoslavia and in different places in the world where where battlefield rape is like a terrible war crime. These, these things really do happen. Um, you want you kind of want this Torah to say, listen, don't ever do that. That's just absolutely awful. In in fact, what the Torah says is you can't do that um, in the moment. So we're going to give you what amounts to a kind of a reform, which we hope will prevent you from doing it at all. Uh, Rashi says that is quoting the Talmud that 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 mitzvah is is the dibratara keneged yetsar hara. This mitzvah spoke to humans' worst instincts and tried to restrain them. I wish it said something different, but that I think is a is a resource in meaning that doesn't give up on the Torah and doesn't say um, you know we're just much smarter than this stupid old book. It says like. We do have terrible instincts, and what do we? What are our resources to try to restrain our worst instincts? The Vensaur Mora is the same thing, right? Um, the, the the parent at the end of their rope might be attempted to have violence. Actually, we've got a judicial procedure to slow everything down. By the way, just one other item: the the item that that comes between those two is about a man who has two wives, one one loved and one hated, the actual physical firstborn who deserves. Uh, preferential treatment and inheritance is the child of the unloved wife. The actual uh, loved wife has the younger child, and the parent, the male, the father, cannot uh, uh, deviate from the inheritance rules to give preferential treatment to the son of the beloved wife. 
where does this sound familiar from? The yeah. Torah in Deuteronomy is like explicitly giving an interpretation to where Jacob went wrong. Like Jacob's first wife, Leah, Ruvain is the Bechor, is the firstborn. He gets the privilege, and yet Jacob, in fact, privileges Joseph, who has two tribes. That's the meaning of Ephraim and Menashe, each being a tribe. Um, and so I just think this is one of the most amazing passages in the Torah that it seems to, as clear as anything can be, um, be criticizing a story about, about Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. So that's what I was saying. The Torah presents within it a certain set of mechanisms that enable you to interpret it and to and to take what what may seem to be objectionable passages and understand them in a slightly different context. And and the Rashi you cited, I think, is a perfect example. And maybe we could just you know close this out by 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 doing the whole one. Lo That what makes this relevant is that it is understanding, as you said, the that there is an evil inclination and that these evil inclinations, I guess, are unleashed, especially uh, when everything is falling apart around you in, in war. We are witness to a, a terrible catastrophe uh, in Ukraine right now where, where crimes that, like this and worse are taking place now on a regular basis, precisely because uh, the, the circumstances of war have unleashed these evil tendencies. Uh, and then it, it goes on to say, um, uh, if God did not, uh, uh, if God had uh, not mm -hmm. allowed her, he would have married her uh, right. uh, in a violation of a prohibition. But if he marries her, in the end, she's going to be the despised woman. Because we see in the next uh, passage the, the law relating to the two wives. And then they're going to have the rebellious child. And so what Rashi does is he connects, the, he's basing it on, on Midrash Tanchuma, he's connecting the three passages, basically, and saying, look, for what we learn from this is that when when things decline, when there's a whole moral circumstances that, that are just out the window, the consequences are going to be not only tragic, but, but overwhelmingly catastrophic. Right. What I would add is that the, the purpose on one level of the Torah is to make us better human beings. And when we confront these difficult passages, we do well to remind ourselves that we also want to become better human beings. And when we study these passages, that's what we need to be looking for. How does this make us, or how can this make us a better human being? What I liked about your comment, Elliot, is that sometimes, you know, this was an expression I think popularized by Hillary Clinton, although it wasn't hers, is that the best could become the enemy of the good. Sometimes you have to take baby steps. So you have to recognize that you can't get everything you want, but you still could be better. And therefore, you allow the, the soldier, the Israelite soldier, to take this woman under severely circumscribed circumstances because that's better than a rape. Hmm. I would say, by the way, that, you know, encoded in here is like, first of all, is, is Elliot said, slight, slightly off on the translation, when the Eshet Yifatoah, the beautiful woman, is captured on a battlefield, Elliot said, you shave her hair. Actually, the Torah says she shaves her hair, shaves hair. And, and pairs her nails. 
and she bewails her family for oh, her. And what I would say about that is, first of all, the 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 image of her shaving her hair and cutting sh shaving her hair and cutting her fingernails is is to sort of make this attractive woman unattractive, and then the person who has captured the man who has captured her is supposed to say, "What the hell am I doing? This is let me let me stop this." And but the other thing is by allowing her to bewail her family for a month, I think this this little detail says, "Okay, you know, captor, recognize the human pain." Vanity, yeah. Of uh, that you are inflicting on this person, and if you see her, you know, bewailing that I'm never going to see my parents again, and I, I, you know, I love my siblings and I love my home, then maybe you'll say, "What the hell am I doing?" Um, and think better of it, and and uh, and restrain your own Yetzirah. Right. So maybe that's where it's going, and and so the Torah is using the language that is located in 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 a time and a place, but also enables us with the interpretive mechanisms to have this kind of conversation. And this is a conversation that's been going on, you know, from, from, you know, the moment that the Torah became legislation, right? This is not, we, we, we are not the first ones having this conversation about difficult pieces of the Torah uh, and, and trying to tease out from it, uh, I think the moral implications, even from uh, passages that, that are, you know, not as compelling as, let's say, putting a, a guardrail around your uh, roof. Um, there is some, comp there is a compelling moral framework to to all of these things. Um, and with that, I think we we've come to the conclusion of uh, of this very very rich parsha. Lots of things going on in this parsha. So many you can turn to any verse practically and have uh, the same or a similar conversation about this. Um, and we want to simply thank all of our viewers and listeners for joining us. We are uh, moving closer and closer to the holidays, the high holidays. Rosh Hashanah is over, just uh, over two weeks away. I know, right? But uh, we, we are... I'm not listening to you. <laughs> We're looking forward Your to Your congregation won't listen to you. Exactly. <laughs> or even... <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's a time of, you know, we're thinking about big issues issues of life issues of you know what 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 is it that people what are, what are people coming to show for what do you think they're coming to show for let's leave let's leave on this note you know uh, every single day literally every single day somebody tells me i'm so excited to come back to show after two years away yeah um, so i feel like they're they're looking i think this year people are looking for not just connection but reconnection and the sound of the shofar is so big and the and yeah and and being part of the room in which everybody is singing you know singing avinu malkeinu and and when you get in the yom kippur afternoon ki anu amecha and they're singing with uh, people people are looking for those i think experiences of being sustained they're looking for, I think, the joy, joy community. They're looking for, I guess, I'm thinking a little, a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of insight, a little bit of energy, hope, faith, barrier. I, I think they're looking for relief and release from anxiety. Yeah. I think that this time of year, people are incredibly anxious for reasons that they can't quite identify. And therefore, some of them, even many of them, are willing to do something that they don't ordinarily do which is go to the synagogue where they've heard that perhaps there is some relief and release for anxiety. Do you think, do you think that they're not able to 
to identify that. I, I want to hone in on that because I think that's actually very insightful that, that there's something out there that you can't identify that, you know, that you are being drawn back to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, there's a lot of angst at this time. It's an existential moment. We, you know, we're human beings and we do our thing most of our lives, but every now and then we get pulled up short and we have to confront our mortality and the recognition that no matter who we are, our lives have not turned out the way that we wanted and we have to find a way to make peace with that. And, and go forward and get the strength from each other to go yeah. forward, which is exactly what we're doing here. That's good. <laughs> with that, we want to thank you again for being with us, and we'll see you on our next edition. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.